0: a bunch of us, none none of us thought that Twitter was going to be successful. The team at Twitter that made Twitter, we didn't go to the fanciest schools. We were really weird and we all brought different things to it. And that's what made it work. And so Twitter and a dozen other product ideas came out of those hackathons. And so, in early really? days when you look at Twitter, you're like, "Oh, I could build this in a day." And it's like, "We we <laughs> we did too." Oh. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: amazingly, amazing. there is a video of the demo of Twitter when it was 6 hours old. The funny thing is, Dick's first Dick Costello's first tweet after joining his COO Literally says, joining as COO of Twitter, task one, undermine CEO and replace them. (laughs) Which is exactly what he did. So I grew up in an environment where there was always a lot of hustle. There was always a lot of like, you've got to invent it yourself and figure out what you were doing. I'm not sure I'm an entrepreneur because... I'm particularly adept at starting companies and keeping them alive or I'm particularly bad at being an employee for other people. (laughs) They're like, this is the stupidest thing. And then instead of calling it audio blogging, someone else said, well, you know, it's kind of like casting or sending audio to your iPod. So I'll call it
1: podcasting. Is that where the word actually came yeah. from? Amazing. And, and, and why did you leave?
0: I left because I felt like we one startups, you burn out in startups. And two, I felt like we we walked away from podcasting. Be adventurous and try things and and be willing to fail and don't have the same path as everybody else because having the same path as everyone else leads to to boring companies that aren't very interesting. And so do something unique and different and, and that'll give you unique insight.
1: Just before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast, can you please make sure you subscribe or follow my channel? This helps me out tremendously. Hello, Rebel. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, you're over in New Zealand at the moment. Yep. Enjoying life there. You've traveled around quite a bit. And you've done a hell of a lot in the industry. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. And I know you also were like the first person in Twitter and the person that brought in Jack Dorsey, and we'll, we'll go into that a bit later, but you've done so many other things as well that I'm really excited to hear all about that. And this podcast, even though you're highly successful, I, I would say, and success is always, you know, has different meanings. This podcast is for early stage startup founders so that they can learn from the failures of even the most successful people, because there is, I'm sure you'd agree there is no such thing as overnight success anyway. So no. <laughs> That's for sure. So, I guess to start off, you know, if you could just give our listeners a bit of a a snapshot of your background and your journey leading up to where you are now.
0: Um, Yeah. So, I grew up in California um, and uh, I started working in startups during uh, my summers in high school Mm -hmm. in the early 1990s and was always very drawn to the technology and startup industry. And then uh, I dropped out of university to found my first company.
1: What were you studying at uni?
0: I was studying physics.
1: Okay. (laughs) And, And how come you dropped out? Like, wasn't your passion or?
0: What I realized was I could be a physicist mm-hmm. and I would spend 12 years studying physics and then I would get to advance the field for a couple years yeah. in my late twenties and early thirties. And then my contribution stopped. So if you look at what, there are very few people in physics and math who do interesting work their whole career. Mm -hmm. The entire field is based on uh, a tremendous amount that you have to learn, and then you get to spend a few years doing original research, and then Mm -hmm. the rest of your career is training the next generation of physicists to do Mm -hmm. their couple of years of original research. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. Like, Mm -hmm. I enjoyed physics. I enjoyed Mm -hmm. the math. yeah, Um, But... I didn't want to spend my entire 20s studying so that I could do my little teeny advancement in the world of physics. I wanted to have a bigger impact in the world. And I wanted a career that let me build stuff and work that wasn't limited to a couple years. And so that's why I had, even though I had, you know, worked in startups, in Silicon Valley during my summers in high school, yeah, I I very quickly decided to go back to that, and had a side project which attracted a little bit of seed investing, and I very quickly dropped out and did that instead.
1: And 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 uh, what was that side project?
0: Oh, it was a company called Meta Events. We did software as a service events calendars. And um, so that you could figure out, you know, you know what events are happening in your town, public events calendars, and we sold it to a company any day that very quickly got bought by Palm, and so I discovered myself working as part of a three thousand person engineering team at Palm when I was twenty one, and uh, that. That was not where I wanted to be
1: <laughs> you you obviously obviously uh, have a very entrepreneurial spirit, um, and I always talking to so many entrepreneurs and being one myself, I think we are a certain sort of breed yeah um, but just going back to even your childhood and that like is there something in there? like tell us a bit about your early childhood or and growing up, and is there something there that think you think that made you want to be an entrepreneur or, or made you, you know, be the way that you are?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. No one in my family had regular jobs. Mm-hmm. My, my dad was an engineer. My mom was an architect. Yeah. And they, they both found their own path. Uh-huh. And, and no one said, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go work for a company, and it's going to be a nine to five thing. And that's, that's going to be my career. And I know that I've got a steady paycheck. So I grew up in an environment where there was always a lot of hustle. There was always mm-hmm. a lot of like, you've got to invent it yourself and figure out what you were doing. And so, you know, my mom worked as an architect. Uh, she was also an adjunct professor at the state university where I grew up in California. Yeah, but That idea that what we're doing is, well, you got to create it yourself is essential. And sometimes I think about it. I think about my career as as an entrepreneur and I'm like, I'm not sure I'm an entrepreneur because I'm particularly adept at starting companies and keeping them alive. Or (laughs) I'm particularly bad at being an employee for other people.
1: Maybe it's a combination of both. I think I'm a bit like you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, really interesting. And and so that was your your first startup. Um, yeah. And then, uh, how many other startups have you been involved with? And and I'd like to hear about one that maybe didn't go where you thought it was going to go, and and why that happened, and what lessons were learned from that as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, the the first startup we had the the called Net Events. We sold it for half a million dollars. Right. And for two college dropouts in our, you know, early 20s.
2: Yeah.
0: Just able, just old enough to drink in the United States. That was a nice success.
1: (laughs) You didn't drink at all, did you? (laughs) No. Okay.
0: You know, but it wasn't a home run. Uh
1: Yeah.
0: It wasn't a home run. And I think that, like, I can't keep track of the number of, other startups I've done Mm. like you just keep you keep trying and you keep working on side projects and you keep kind of trying to figure out which ones are going to come together and and how they're going to collaborate and then you know some of them some of them take off and the you know I think I think there must have been half a dozen different companies incorporated and funded on one level or another um and then the craziest thing is We'll get into the audio and Twitter thing. But the the startup that actually like gave like gave me a little exit. Enough Mm -hmm. to buy a house and take a couple years off with my kids. Yeah. I never intended that to be a startup at all.
1: All right. Well tell us that story.
0: So in you know, after I, you know I Spent time at Odeo and Twitter, and then I went and spent some time at Yahoo working with the Flickr team to try and build out social media. And then uh I decided that I was gonna be a digital Momad, so I, I moved to Uruguay and was working remotely before Uruguay. anyone before it was a thing that people were working remotely.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. And so Yahoo said, Oh no, you can't do that. So I just started doing consulting and I accidentally built out a consulting business Uh where one thing led to another. And then we had 17 people and we had, you know, an office and a conference and a whole world of of activities. And I ended up selling the consultancy to digital garage out of Japan and we built out their consultancy business and sold it to pivotal like at the time I was like, I am not doing another startup. I'm not seeking funding. I'm just gonna do consulting things. And then we're gonna build some of our own products on the side. And it ended up being an exit that I didn't expect at all. I I went into those conversations, literally expecting business development, expecting collaboration. And they're like, why don't we acquire you? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And, and um, why did you choose Uruguay? So I, the real reason I chose
0: Uruguay is that um, my ex was from there and, and uh-huh. uh, she wanted to move back home. And I just, you know, it felt like a night, nice, you know, I, I didn't know much about it.
2: Yeah. Then
0: later I learned and Uruguay is a, actually a very well positioned country for, for startups. There's tremendous infrastructure, there's 5G mm-hmm. over the whole country, every kid in the country gets a laptop, yeah. programming is taught in primary schools, and there's a bunch of tax benefits for tech companies, yeah. and so it's become a little bit of a tech hub of people doing work, and mm-hmm. um, and it's worked economically. Uruguay,
2: yeah. 30,
0: 20 years ago, was a relatively poor country, yeah. and... Now it's a solidly middle-income country and uh, poverty is almost entirely eliminated in the country, which is very yeah. different than the neighboring countries in South America.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, my wife is from Argentina and my son-in-law from Uruguay. And I've, I visited Uruguay about seven years ago and very lovely people. Um, and yeah, big difference between the two. And I always compare um, Australia and New Zealand you know, you've got that real competitiveness, but New Zealand has like three million people, and in the arts in the sport and everything they're really up there like they're amazing for the amount of people they have and I think Uruguay is the same like if you look at sport they've won the um soccer world cup uh you know twice or three times, and um they're they're right up there for and so i think it's three million people as well so yes, yeah it's interesting it is a, would be a nice place uh to live i think um yeah it's interesting all right so just a, a question around that um actually the first podcast i did with with a mate of mine shane and he was saying um with business with startups it's once you have money then it's a lot easier to set up another business or another startup and be successful yeah what what do you think of, about that as well
0: well once you have money then you have connections and then you have mm-hmm. runway and then you mm-hmm. can finance things. Yeah. When you're trying to do it without money, mm-hmm.
2: it's incredibly
0: hard to bootstrap. Yeah. So, um, you know, and that's one of the, the, the reasons that being in Silicon Valley does make sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, access to super savvy risk-tolerant capital mm. is tremendous. Like I had, a, I had a company fail yeah, and I went to my VCs and I said, I'm very sorry. We didn't get product market fit. We can't raise another round, we're shutting down. And you know what one of my VCs said?
1: What'd they
2: say?
0: You don't really need to jump on a call with me to explain why your business failed an email is sufficient to say the business failed and you're going to start another one. <laughs> and and that, that is a, like, that's a mindset of someone who's like, I'm going to take risk after risk after risk. Mm. And mm. I'm betting in you. And if you didn't succeed this time, you'll, you'll yeah. do it next time.
1: Well that that's that's fantastic. I, I don't I think that's more a US sort of mentality. It's very much on, a US
0: mentality. It's why
1: Yeah. It
0: it's the secret sauce. Mm. Because it's not like American companies Yeah. have less regulation. It's not like it's cheap to run mm-hmm. a company in the US. Yeah. yeah. Like the cost of labor, the cost of compliance, the cost of healthcare and housing and everything in California yeah. is really hot. It is mm-hmm. it is a very expensive place to run a startup. Yeah. But you have access to the capital. And interesting things like here, I'm based in New Zealand now. No one knows that I'm based in New Zealand. Or they think it's an oddity. But as far <laughs> as they're concerned, I'm I'm really in San Francisco. <laughs>
2: right.
0: I've just found, you know, a remote place to work from. And so mm. You know, one of the things that we're we're seeing in this global environment is like those investors in the area, they don't care where you're based.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They care about how you collaborate and, and, and what you're doing. And so finding that risk-tolerant capital that can give you a leg up,
2: mm-hmm.
0: help move things forward, and understand where you're coming from is really important.
1: Yeah, You're a startup in Australia yeah. and you haven't got that capital. Um, what would you do and how would you approach investors and which investors would you approach? What would you recommend?
0: Well, use your personal networks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you know, well, I haven't if, got any, I have, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm young, I'm 22 years old. I'm just starting out. I got this brilliant idea. The startups is, is fantastic. And I, a lot of people are excited about it and people are willing to pay for it. What, what should I do? I need the capital to, to get going.
0: I I would do something that builds your network. Mm-hmm. 500 startups is an amazing accelerator. And they pull people in and have them spend three months in San Francisco or, or Menlo Park or wherever it is down in the mm-hmm. valley. And the entire purpose of that is to maximize your networking. Okay. Like, yeah. And and they set it up so that you don't need a long-term visa. You're not actually legally working in the United States, everything else. Go and meet people. You know, one of the -hmm. the differences between Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. is it's not here. It's not considered great to sell yourself.
1: Yes, exactly. They're worried about the
0: tall poppy syndrome. They're worried about pitching themselves. And Mm -hmm. so what you need to do if you're going to go raise some money Mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley is realize that you go to a party and you work the party and you pitch it and Mm -hmm. you like, you sell yourself hard, like why Mm -hmm. you're interesting. Yeah. And why you're bringing this other perspective. Now, a balance of capital is important. Like if you have some local investors and the Silicon Valley folks, that's better.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah. their network a good investor brings a tremendous network and brings mm-hmm. a lot of resources mm-hmm. yeah. the investors that I really love working with, I, I love working with Bloomberg Beta as an early yeah. stage investor
2: mm-hmm.
0: because they run lots of events, they run them in person in New York and San Francisco, but they also run them online they record them all They do introductions, they maintain a Rolodex. I need something and I can go Mm -hmm. to the Bloomberg beta list that they have and they get it to me. Um, When Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, that Slack room with the other founders from Bloomberg was essential for us being able to figure it out. And it's not just that. First round capital does it really well. A16Z does it well. Union Square Ventures does it well. There's a whole bunch that mm-hmm. do it well.
2: Yep. Yep. But
0: finding those investors that aren't just, oh, we'll give you connections, or well, you know, we'll give you capital, but they cultivate a community, and
2: mm-hmm.
0: the the other good part about that is like when I've had companies fail, none of those investors are upset about the failure. Instead, what they say is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, here are all these other portfolio companies that are doing great and desperate for your skills.
1: Right. Yeah. So it's, it's all about you. And it, like, I think the number one thing for investors is the actual team themselves and the experience they have and what they've done in the past. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So you said you had a few companies that have failed. And yeah. um, so what would be the, the biggest one and walk us through um, why that happened? So we can learn from that.
0: That's a that's a great question. So I would say so the, the craziest story is actually my current company. Right. Which failed.
2: Uh-huh. Like
0: so we raised a a pre seed round in 2018, one and a half million dollars yeah. to build a decentralized social media platform. But it was 2018.
2: Mm.
0: So it it wasn't until Elon Musk took over Twitter in 2022. that anyone believed us that this would be a problem. Like (laughs) uh, for the first four years of the company, everybody's like, "Uh, I don't see, you know, I don't see you getting it. So we, our first and biggest problem was we made bad technology choices. Mm -hmm. We made technology choices that required a lot of technology work before we could start validating the customer need.
1: Is that because you're using the blockchain?
0: It wasn't a blockchain, but it was a blockchain adjacent project. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. It used a lot of decentralized tech and everything else. And when we talk to users, they're only concerned about owning their identity and relationships after they have built up an audience.
2: Mm. Before mm. they
0: built up an audience, yeah. they they don't care about those things. And so... And, and Twitter and Facebook and others, everybody complained about it, but people kept using it. Mm. There was no desire to search for it. So we, we built all this decentralized tech when what people really wanted was the ability to monetize or the ability to build up an audience, mm. the ability to produce. It. And, and they were perfectly happy. And so you see companies that came out of the same era, Substack used it, used a bunch of money to subsidize bringing authors on board and was really successful. Uh, Gina over at Mighty Networks focused on the trainers, these niche niche communities. Like there were a bunch of companies in the same space who figured it out. So we failed. So I went to my investors, I said, we've run out of money. They said, you don't have traction, I'm not gonna give you money.
2: Mm-hmm
0: and we I let everyone go but I didn't quite shut down the company and all of my investors this is the one who said shut it down yeah uh, they're like I've never seen a zombie company come back <laughs> you can go to zombie mode cuz you don't want to give up on the dream but they don't come back and then one of our investors came back to me and said, actually, I really like your idea. Uh-huh. I'm willing to fund it for a couple of years. Yeah, to make sure that you guys are able to come, th- like, I believe in the vision. Mm-hmm. We've done well enough in the other companies we've done. We will give you the funding to keep operating. Awesome. And we spun it back up Mm -hmm. and then we kept working on it. We built it and, and we had to pivot a few times, switch protocols and things like that. And it meant that we had a good product that was polished around that when Elon Musk took off and when, you know, Twitter imploded and we had all these things, we were able to, to build this new product and this new protocol Noster and it's taken off. Now it's not to the moon yet, but yeah. there's 700,000 people using the protocol. Wow! And That's there's a whole ecosystem of apps and mm. it's exactly the vision we pitched in 2018. Mm. <laughs> but the timing wasn't right in
1: 2018. Yeah, yeah, timing's so important, isn't it? When, when I started my um, VR training uh, startup, it was 2.17. It was really early days and people just didn't get what VR was. It was such a hard sell. And also like the headsets, I remember doing a demo once, putting phones in these headsets and like one out of seven worked and all, all these sort of things going on. And you didn't have the technology then. And uh, always US is always ahead of us. So, you know, like Walmart, they started training 2 million people with VR because you know, they, they saw the vision, they saw how well it worked. But in Australia, it was so... So difficult to sell. So it's it's timing is, is so important. And then of course COVID as well.
0: Timing um. timing is so important. And in our case, what our investors said when we put it into zombie mode was you need to find someone who believes. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that that's such a hard search because you can't be like, hey, do you believe? <laughs>
2: yeah
0: do you believe enough to like give us a couple million dollars and, and, and engage with us? And eventually we yeah. did in, and, um, and through networks and through personal connections and through people who, you know, I sort of met at parties and, and conferences and things mm-hmm. like that. We got to know each other, we collaborated, we built it and it, and it worked.
2: Yeah. And
0: we were able to, you know, go from having raised you know 1.4 million dollars us back in yep. 2018 to raising five million dollars this past october
1: right <laughs>
0: um but it you know my my investors are like they haven't met anyone who is able to be so frugal and th- the point was like there are times in which we're frugal and we're really really lean about how, how our burn rates are yeah. because we're waiting for the right time. We're doing mm. the work. We're doing the prep. We're doing the research. We're building the networks. But mm. it's not the right moment in the market. And so mm-hmm. we need to survive long enough. Yeah. You know, kind of like those those animals long that long only survive when there's a, a rainstorm in the desert and they know how to sort of burrow into the ground.
2: Yeah. That's what we it, did. And mm.
0: and it worked. But it was a total bet.
1: The whole social media like it's it's huge now obviously for, for years and years i actually in 2017 um i work for an organization tafe digital does training to you know hundreds of thousands of people here in australia in vocational education and, and i started social media in that time and it was funny because i was looking at uh, will we do a myspace page or facebook oh, yeah. <laughs> went with facebook so that was um 2008 i think and so i i grew that social media presence and And for online learning, the Facebook groups were fantastic. I actually did some research and, you know, the completion rates went right up with that. But now it's like, you know, I I don't know. You've probably seen the show, The Social Dilemma. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, it's really, you know, the algorithms is causing, like I I heard heard a podcast um, about a week ago and and this uh, person, I think he was a philosopher and he was saying, um, Yeah, up to 15 years ago, society was based on groups or on church or on, you know, um, family. Uh, Now, the last 15 years has been on algorithms. And, you know, a lot of people are saying what I see is algorithms are causing that division because you only see what you believe and you don't see anything else. And what are your thoughts on that? Having been a person that actually started Twitter, I mean, I know you got out early, but what are your thoughts on, on the social media space at the moment?
0: I mean, social media is complicated.
2: <laughs> <laughs> because
0: on, on some level, it solves so many problems that we have. Mm-hmm. It, it democratizes the public sphere. Yeah, And it should be no surprise to anyone that when we democratize the public sphere, we get a bunch of amazing things and a whole lot of things (laughs) that we pretended didn't exist yeah you know so if you think about the pre-internet era even before blogs or things like that the the amount of resources you needed to make a magazine to to pull together a community on a topic and get that distributed and get people it required a lot of capital. Mm -hmm. And so we democratized all this stuff Mm -hmm. and we've got everyone. And so some of that stuff is great and some of that stuff is terrible. You know, the people with anorexia and bulimia before social media mostly thought they were alone, Mm -hmm. mostly thought no one else did this. Like, and so with social media, now people learn and, and lots of people get out of it and lots of people get support, but some people use it to advocate for bulimia and for anorexia and help each other. (laughs) And so like, we, we don't focus on the people doing the thing, like dealing with social media in, in in the good way. Now, the. The other issue is that the only business model that we've developed for social media is this kind of advertising model. And we developed these algorithms that do engagement and algorithms are fine, but we need agency over them. And the problem is the algorithms are tuned to Mm -hmm. keep us engaged in a very passive way. The, The psychological studies about social media show that the Instagram Reels TikTok type feed mm-hmm. one video after the other. Yeah, It's kind of like a casino. And it makes you feel worse. But the social media where you're engaged in a conversation and you post something and people comment. Are you, you podcast? It, <laughs> it, like that is mm-hmm. really affirming and psychologically beneficial. And... But that's not the thing that advertisers need. So you know, advertisers hate Discord and Reddit, and they don't <laughs> like Pinterest much either. And so, but those are all super collaborative social media apps.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Whereas you know, advertisers, they don't like WhatsApp, they don't like Signal, they don't like all of these collaborative, like socially redeeming platforms because they're not getting you to feel bad about yourself and buy things. And so we have a, a world where the advertising model is driving an engagement model that is super passive. And, you know, sometimes that also pushes people off into crazy. So, you know, the, all these studies about YouTube and Instagram and TikTok about how mm-hmm. you can get further and further out into this world of, of conspiracy theories and things like that because the algorithms just want to keep you engaged. And if, if, if you're, you know, discovering the secrets of vaccines causing, you know, causing autism or something like that, it makes you mm-hmm. more and more excited. And so what
2: mm-hmm.
0: we need to do is give users agency over these algorithms and say, they are both powerful and risky that, they're important, but dangerous. And, um, you know, we don't let people, you know, run airlines without, without some safety regulations. We don't let people produce food. We don't let people run a restaurant without there being a health and safety inspection. Yeah. You know, yeah. the health and safety inspection at a restaurant doesn't have to give away your recipes, but <laughs> it, you do get a rating. And if it's unsafe, we don't let you run a restaurant. And so, exactly, we but we don't have any kind of regulation around social media, which says, you know, document your work. Mm. Um, but if we don't, but but removing the algorithm doesn't work. All these studies with Facebook mm-hmm. from the Stanford uh, um, Internet Research Agency, all those folks show us that if you give people the same thing without the algorithm, without with just a chronological feed, what happens is they switch to other apps that have the
1: algorithms. Making the algorithms in a way that people, you know, like they're more sort of ethical and they're not just going to, you know, make you see more and more violence, for example, just because it's making them more money. I think it just all comes back to monetization and just the need just to only make money instead of some, this is a tool for the good of humanity, which it can be. And it is in many cases, but um, yeah, it's it's all back to making the dollar again, isn't it? Just if you're only thinking about that, that's pretty sad. And plus, I guess they're so powerful, that's really hard to get them to change because they've got so much money. They got the best lawyers and you know, they, they have huge influence. They're probably more influence than, than most um, governments. I would imagine. But we don't
0: like we're about, we're in the process of seeing a shift right now around mm-hmm. advertising because advertising is about to stop working mm-hmm. because we know that as individuals, we don't trust ads, not very yeah. much, but oh. we trust, other people we engage with a lot. Mm. Mm. And we now Mm. know that the new emerging AI stuff is good enough that we can't determine whether or not that's a real person or not. Mm. So the incentives are for advertisers to switch to making AI bots that make social media that is engaging and supportive and, and you feel connection to. Mm-hmm. And then when you say, okay, I'm going to go buy a house or I'm going to buy a dishwasher or a new computer, those AI bots start talking to you about that. And, and maybe you know that they're an AI and maybe you don't, but you can know that they're an AI. And if you trust them from other things you've, they've said to you and you've engaged with, you'll trust them on the recommendation for what computer to buy.
1: It's fascinating. And yeah, the whole AI area is just opening up. Let's say, you know, it's like the beginning of the internet. Absolutely. Um, And in one of your videos, you mentioned the importance of adapting communication modes with new media during major shifts. So do you think this applies to AI? And... um, What advice would you give to early startup founders in navigating these evolving communication platforms?
0: One of the the most interesting conversations that we had around the office when we created Twitter, Mm -hmm. and I don't remember who was talking about it, but a bunch of the people on the team were sort of having a conversation, sort of while drinking coffee on a break between hacking on things. And
2: Mm -hmm.
0: we had this realization that the human interactions, the human behavior doesn't change. So if you're looking at a technology shift, and in in Twitter's case, the shift was from, we use the internet on a desktop computer to we use it on a smartphone. Initially, Twitter was just SMS, but the reason Twitter took off is because the iPhone came out within a year of Twitter launching, and it was a perfect platform for the iPhone. One, the mobile web worked really well on on Twitter, but two, then the apps worked really well. And so what we were thinking about was what human behavior and social behavior has worked in the past, and how would it work on this new technology that's emerging in this new paradigm? And so- Mm -hmm. We looked at the way, you know, we had used university systems where you could sort of do status updates and we did where chat systems and the way IRC worked and the way blogging worked, but also the way in which rural radio stations, let you call in and relieve a message that then goes out to their friends or... Mm -hmm. Uh, newspapers let you write in little short letters, like little short notes that then got sent out to everyone else in the community. And so Twitter essentially was that aspect of what's a really short, easy way of keeping people up to date with what's going on with me.
2: Yeah. And make it
0: super seamless and super easy. But it scaled it not from... The thing you say with your friends or like sending them a quick note to anybody in the world could then view that. And so the human behavior is essentially the same. The technology lets us change the nature and scale and the affordances on it. And so when you look at new emerging things, we have uh, the new Apple vision pro with the spatial computing. Remember people don't change. Our technology does.
2: <laughs> mm. We
0: evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to have certain kinds of needs, of feeling inclusion, of, of, of having enough, of feeling connection, of, of finding love, of finding friendship, of taking care of people, of feeling like you're winning, of, of all these different essential human behaviors. Sitting around the campfire. Those things stay the same. But the technology changes. And so what does it mean to meet the human needs that have existed for two hundred thousand years in the era of AI? How can yes. AI shift the underlying rules?
1: Mm. That's a great question. <laughs> and I guess uh the people that work that out they can have the the new Twitter so to speak. Absolutely. And almost
0: never do the companies and media and platforms survive these ma- major major technology mm. shifts. The, the, mm. the amazing thing about Meta is that they were able to transition Facebook from a desktop web app to mobile.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But Flickr, for example, was the dominant photo sharing social media app. They yeah. weren't able to go from web to, to mobile. What happened was Instagram took over, yeah. you know, and so, and you know, most of the, the reason that Facebook Meta bought Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus, and all these other companies is they know that yeah. they can't make the transition with Facebook, and so that's that's their bet. And now they're you know they spent billions on trying to do you know virtual reality stuff. And now they've switched to doing AI and they have such a cash cow that they can, they can do that. Um, So one, one thing that we get to think about when we think about building new things is how do I do the same thing that I did before, but with AI, like, how does AI Mm -hmm. change it? How does AI change loneliness and friendship and learning and, and falling in love and uh, knowing, you know, knowing what's going on in the world so that you have something to talk about other people or are Mm. feeling good about yourself or um, making money, buying and selling things or your day-to-day job or, you know, or taking care you know raising kids, taking care of people, taking care of your family, finding a place to live, you know, engaging in sort of social events, you know, the equivalent of church. If you don't go to church, like that social activity still needs to happen.
2: And mm-hmm. and we're going to mm-hmm.
0: now use AI as one of these fundamental substrates to make it work. And so, you know, I, I'm a programmer and I use, you know, Copilot and GPT-4 in my work all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I, mm-hmm. The programming is still the same. Yeah. But the debugging isn't. Like, it <laughs> used to be when you were programming that you spent like 5% of your time writing new stuff and 95% of the time figuring out why that new stuff you wrote doesn't work.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And now it's like 10% of the time is debugging. Because you have this intelligent chat bot that can read your code and your entire application and say, oh, you know, know, now I got another idea. Maybe we should try this, or maybe you should try that. Like that's Mm -hmm. why people don't go to Stack Overflow now because you can have this conversation with things. And you still have to think about programming. You still have to understand what you're building and how you're building it and the way they interact. And and you have to understand it, but the syntax not working. (laughs) <laughs> and all of those stupid bugs, those go away.
1: Yeah. It could even be sometimes just the space that you don't know is there can stop the whole thing from working, all sorts of stuff. And, that, I know. and,
0: and with Copilot, yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And so yeah. What, what does that mean in every other industry? And, and one of the most amazing things is how mm-hmm. slowly the adoption of these things is. Mm. it's it's much slower than we think
1: okay because they say ai is one of the fastest things that have been adopted way more than than so many other technologies but businesses
0: are adopting it really slowly because Mm. businesses are you know they have ways of working they have ways of collaborating they have things getting done and yeah you know that shift on how to change and how to adopt it is powerful. It's like, you know, what what if I used API, you know, AI to track down this stuff? What if I used AI as a, a power motivator? One of the, mm-hmm. the interesting things is the studies around AI is that it does not have a massive effect on the best performers. So the the people who are really good at their job, AI doesn't help them very much. Hmm. What AI does a great job is taking the bottom half of performers Mm -hmm. of any different Mm -hmm. task or thing and making them equivalent to the median performer. And so when we think about it is like, what fields have a bunch of people who needed a ton of time training and learning things and bringing up to speed mm-hmm. and continue to do the job, but not very well? Mm. well it's AI interesting. giving it's... them an AI tool so that those people can mm-hmm. can hit average.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. the benefit. I mean. I- I, I used it in, in my startup and when it came out, when I started using it, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then I started introducing it to the team. and said, look, I want you guys to use this, learn how to use it. Don't be threatened by it. You will actually become a lot more productive with it. So I want you to, 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 use it and to get good at it and, uh, you know, not be threatened by, oh, you're going to lose your job because of it. No, they can just become a lot more productive. So that, that was the tech that I, I found. Um, worked. Yeah, it's really interesting space. So just going back to Twitter, you spoke a little bit about that. So let's hear about the Twitter story, yeah. how it started. So you were the first person there and yeah. So tell us about it. It's quite, quite exciting. Really.
0: Sure. So I had, uh, I had sold the, the first company Meta events when I dropped out of mm-hmm. college uh, yeah. in 2000. And then there was the big mm-hmm. dot com crash. And So there was no work in startups for a few years, and I traveled all around the world uh, volunteering with activist groups all over the place, helping set up computer labs for people Mm -hmm. Um, all over the world. And um, then in 2004, uh, some friends got together and they said, hey, there's an election. What can we do with technology in the election to prevent George Bush from getting reelected? Mm-hmm. And so we started playing with phones and we started playing with hacking things and we built a whole bunch of things that helped the young yeah. Democrats like send you text messages where you can go vote and reminding people that they should go vote. Cause it was election day mm-hmm. and um, a bunch of things like that. Yeah. And uh, we we put that together and we built that in, in San Francisco. And then around the same time, uh, a bunch of the people working on the blogger team at Google had gone around and said, well, instead of journalists covering the election, why don't we give a blog to each politician
2: mm-hmm.
0: and have them just talk directly? And at, at that time, a bunch of people were looking at how to make blogs better. Like, what can we do with this, this RSS feed? Mm-hmm. And this guy, yeah. uh, Dave Weiner, said, well, why don't I just make a link to an MP3 file? And that was a like, mm-hmm. super simple idea. And
2: yeah. He's yeah. like, if
0: we make a link to an new MP3 file, instead of a feed of blog posts, you could have a fle- feed of mp3s these audio files and Mm -hmm. what if instead of putting music in these mp3 files we read out our blog post (laughs) and so it was called audio blogging Uh and everybody made fun of it they're like this is the stupidest thing and (laughs) then instead of calling it audio blogging someone else said well you know it's kind of like Casting or sending audio to your iPod. Right. So I'll call it podcasting.
1: Is that where the word actually came yeah. from? Amazing. Wow.
0: Because there had been a startup in the late nineties called point cast mm-hmm. that would be, it, uh-huh. <laughs> seems like a terrible idea now, but <laughs> you installed <laughs> the app and it would be a screensaver on your computer and it would show you the weather and stock and news and then ads while your computer was right. on a screensaver.
2: Right. And so they
0: called it point cast. And so yeah. there was this idea of using casting, of like sending things, sort of spells yeah. and sending it. Mm-hmm. And, and and podcasting term comes from the fact that it was like, well, we're sending it to the iPod. But if you called yeah. it like iPodcasting or something, then Apple <laughs> would
2: sue you yeah for sure. so they just
0: called it podcasting and so in 2004 one of the guys doing this pod you know this audio blogging was named yeah. noah glass and he's like i think podcasting could be a real thing
1: he was put on with that
0: yeah and he was friends with evan williams and so he went to Ev and he said, hey, Ev, why don't you give me some investment money so we can we can do this, uh, you know, audio blogging. Yeah. And Ev had, had accidentally sold his company, Blogger, to Google. And I and I'd say no, accidentally really. because Blogger, Pyro was the company, but Blogger was kind of in a similar situation to... my company a few years ago like people were using the app but they couldn't find additional investors and they ran out of money and so Mm. he got to the point where he was just like uh can anyone donate some money we need to raise another thousand dollars a month in order so that the servers don't go offline (laughs) Um, and they'd received venture capital backing and stuff but you know had no business model So Mm -hmm.
2: 2003,
0: 2002, 2001, I can't remember exactly when Google had acquired them because they're like, well, we need blogs in our search engine. Like Google didn't know what they were acquiring. And, and, (laughs) and the culture fit between the blogger team and the Google team didn't work at all.
2: The -hmm. Google
0: team is very, you know, the Google folks are very analytical, very data driven, very, they don't. Google's not very good at social software. And the blogger team is all about narrative and story and people and connection. Yeah,
2: of course.
0: So the blogger team had to take this commute down to Silicon Valley because everyone lived in San Francisco. And so they were interested in blogs and podcasting are kind of blog adjacent things. And so they started listening to podcasts on their in the Google bus going back and forth. And so when Noah went to them and said, hey, why don't you give me some seed capital and we can build a startup around podcasting. And now at the time, Mm -hmm. there was no startups around podcasting. At the time, it was Mm -hmm. like we were the very first, like there should be commercialization of podcasting. And so Mm -hmm. Ev, Ev said, yeah, great. I'll give you some seed capital. And um You know, around that time, he quit Google and just said, you know, I'm going to, I hate the commute and everything else. And we started building it. And so I, you know, started working with Noah. We started working in cafes. I met Ev. There was, you know, no one else in the company. Eventually, we moved Mm -hmm. into Noah's living room. And then Noah's (laughs) wife kicked us out of her living room. And then Ev got a new apartment. Um, and so we, but he didn't want to give up the lease of the old apartment. So we moved into his old apartment. <laughs> it was a very teeny little two bed, like, like two room apartment, like very, very small apartment. Mm-hmm. And um, we basically built the first consumer podcasting company. So we built a tool for downloading the podcasts and putting them on your yep. iPod or listening to them on the desktop or listening to them web. And we built tools for recording them. You know, now we're using Riverside, yeah. but we built a little yep. studio tool that let you record podcasts.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Because because of you guys, <laughs> you know, we're able to do what we do. And We,
0: we went out to... Uh, National Public Radio in the U.S. And we said, hey, you guys have all these radio programs. You should do podcasting. And they're like, no one's going to listen to a radio program on your iPod. We had some some luck. So one, Ev is pretty well known because he'd worked on Blogger. And mm-hmm. Chris Anderson from Ted got in touch with him and said, Hey, what are you working on? And he's like, well, I've got this sort of startup. We're kind of doing this podcast thing. And we were sort of mm-hmm. in stealth, like no one knew about us. And so Chris said, well, why don't you launch it at Ted? And so we were able to launch it at, at Ted and launch it at-
2: And And we got right. interviewed yep. in the Air
0: Times, and we got a lot of attention, a lot of hype. And this was a down mm-hmm. cycle in startups. So there was mm-hmm. not much funding going on. And
2: uh,
0: we were able to raise $5 million in VC funding. And in 2005, $5 million was a lot of money. We were blown away at how successful we were at raising that money. Um, Mm. And we, you know, and Noah and some of the other folks went down to Apple and said, Hey, this podcasting thing is a big deal. Apple, you should do something with podcasts. Let's partner. And and Apple was like, "Ah, maybe. Well, Mm. At the same time, in secret, they were going around with a crack team working really, really quickly and hard to integrate podcasting into the iPod and iTunes. Really? And so, Apple did a great job. Like they went in Mm -hmm. and they, they kicked butt and they launched, like we did something that was beautiful and polished and really nice and a beautiful interface. And you could explore all the podcasts and you could listen to them and you expose the back catalog. But Apple made something that worked so simply and worked end to end. They had a simple directory. Mm -hmm. They integrated in iTunes. They put it on the iPod and it knew which ones you'd listen to.
2: The, mm, and then deleted mm-hmm. the old
0: ones because the the listening behavior on an iPod is different for podcasting. Yeah, and so we were then faced with a situation which is we were the number two,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and most people just you know this was before the iPhone came out, before Android came out. People were listening to these stuff on their iPod. You had to sit, plug it, it into your computer. You had to sync it. You had to have this app. And what, what happened was, you don't want to be number two. No. You don't want to be the, the, the also-ran. And so we had an idea, which is like, well, we have $3.5 million, $4 million in the bank. We have this team. We like the team. We like the office. We like the, working together. What else could we do? Really? And so- we actually made a very intentional process of pivoting. And we uh-huh. did a big brainstorming process of what have you liked in the past? What was cool? What was interesting? How do you collaborate? And that process explored we explored visual voicemail, we explored emerging web video, we explored you know other phone stuff. We explored what we could do with text messaging. And one of the things that we explored was we tried products that people liked and had used. And so one of those products was uh, an open source tool that a couple of us in the office had been using called TextMob. And TextMob isn't Twitter, Mm -hmm. but it was a way for you to send text messages out to a group of people and get status updates, mostly used during protests. So one of those things okay. we used in the 2004 election protests, and we used mm-hmm. in a bunch of different protests. And, you know, it didn't have a short code and, and you had to join specific groups. And so we set up a process in Odeo of every Wednesday would be hackathon day. Okay. And uh, you, we made it so that you had to join a new team each Wednesday. So no repeating of teams. You had to collaborate with everybody else. And we would get up at 9 a.m. and we would pitch different ideas and the people would form teams and then we would demo it at 6 p.m. And and this was after we had done some evaluation process of using existing tools and Mm -hmm. and sort of ideating and then doing a, a design session of what we liked and didn't like in those tools. And so Twitter and... A dozen other product ideas came out of those hackathons, and so in really? early days, when you look at Twitter, you're like, "Oh, I could build this in a day," and it's like, "We, we, <laughs> we did too." Oh. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: amazingly, amazing. there is a video of the demo of Twitter when it was six hours old. Oh, really? And we don't have the video. It never got uploaded online because oh. YouTube didn't exist. So we digitized yeah. the video and sent it on the local file share network. And so I have emails in my Gmail, cause that's still around saying, go to yeah. this local file service to watch the video of the demo. No one has the demo, we've lost it. Oh. Um, so when what happened is we did that for about six or eight weeks. I can't remember how long. And mm-hmm. some of those products seemed interesting. And so what we did with those products is we said, okay, two of them, we're going to spin up little teams to work on and we're going to keep working on the podcasting thing. Cause we don't quite want to shut it down. And one of them was a periscope like video sharing tool for uploading and sharing video to MySpace. You could do the six or twelve second videos. I can't remember how long, and we called it Heliodio. And another, initially we didn't have a name, and so people joked that it was called Friend Stalker. But we never launched with that name. That was just a joke name. But and that's the one that became Twitter. Oh,
1: really?
0: And and the name Twitter
1: uh, Mm
0: -hmm. actually is a word in the English dictionary. In Noah actually sat with a giant Oxford English dictionary in the back of the office, starting with A, looking at every word in the Oxford, like, he spent two weeks on it or something, like, a lot of time in the back of, saying, you know, is this word the name for our product? And Twitter is a word in English, which is like those little messages that bird, you know, bird songs, like, you know, little bits of communication between birds. Um, but we didn't want to buy the domain name Twitter because someone wanted to sell it and it was like $15,000. So we registered twttr.com.
2: Mm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: no vowels. And yeah. we put it under one of the engineers, like we put the name for the domain name registry on one of the engineers on the team was most excited about it, that was Jack Dorsey. Right. (laughs) And so he kind of became the founding CEO of Twitter by accident. (laughs) He was, he was the engineer on the team who was most enthusiastic about the Twitter idea. Uh And he was part of the team, but we pitched three or four ideas that were nearly identical at the time Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, but he was Mm -hmm. really into
0: it and he is super smart and drove forward and so the initial team that we spun off to work on twitter was you know jack dorsey noah glass and florian Weber. now no one no one remembers who florian and noah are um because noah noah was was pushed out by ev And then Ev eventually pushed out Jack, and then Jack pushed out Ev, and there's a whole bunch of drama, and there's TV shows about it, and all those those things like that. Um, And Florian was this German developer who was working on it, super talented, He was like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm ready to move on. And a bunch of us, none of us thought that Twitter was going to be successful. (laughs) Right. Right. that's why Jack was made CEO. It was like, this is a side project and we're going to have to do a bunch of other side projects. And maybe one of these are going to come out and, and work. But we don't know which one of these is going to work and we don't know when and how. And so the, the entire idea was it would be a product lab that would build new products. And so mm-hmm. um, the company was recapped and renamed from Odeo to obvious and obvious ventures um, and it was obvious okay. that they should just keep trying new things and eventually became twittering and so that's the story but I guess the, the other really important thing is like it was a pivot mm-hmm. it's the, it's like the most classic pivot mm-hmm. and there's a tech crunch article saying I don't know if Ev Williams is the smartest or the stupidest person in the history of Silicon Valley <laughs> Because we walked away from podcasting. <laughs> yeah. We were the dominant company in podcasting, mm. like, and podcasting wow. is a thing.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Could have been, yeah, bigger than Twitter. Yeah, probably, exactly. You know. Yeah. Well, wow, what an amazing story, and and. I, I heard that you you actually employed or brought Jack Dorsey in, is yeah, that so true? Right? We,
0: we hired Jack not when the company first started. He started a, a uh-huh. year in when my now ex-wife quit. So she's uh-huh. a, a Python developer uh-huh. and working on it. And she quit because uh-huh. she was like, this is a boys club and I want to go do something else and I'm tired of working at the startup all the time. And uh, that's when we hired Jack. And th- so the funny thing is, uh-huh. The other person we considered seriously and we tried to hire to bring in was Moxie Marlinspike, who created Signal. Right. And the encryption protocol behind WhatsApp. And
2: so, you know,
0: there was a time when there weren't that many people doing stuff that was super interesting and we all kind of hung out. The, the other person on the team who people don't know was there was Kevin Sistrom, who was our intern helping with the, the pitch deck to investors. And we wanted Kevin to keep working with us. Like, Kevin was amazing. Instead, he quit and
1: started Instagram. Well, that wasn't a bad move. No. <laughs> what an amazing team. Like, looking back, just absolutely amazing. And, and, um, but how long did you stay and when, when did you actually leave? At what so point? I was there from and, 2004
0: why? to 2006.
1: And, okay. and,
0: and, and, and why did you leave? I left because I felt like we, one, startups, you burn out in startups. And two, I felt like we walked away from podcasting. Like we didn't talk to our users enough. Like, I was there because I believed in podcasting. I believed in democratizing the media. And I, I felt like we walked away from it. So I left there and went over to work with the Flickr team, Katarina Fake, who had just been acquired by Yahoo. But I literally just moved across the street. Um, because <laughs> it seemed to me at the time like Flickr was going to have a bigger
1: future. Mm, I remember yep. Flickr. Mm, yeah. Um, so now looking back on those that time and then leaving, do you have any regrets? I mean, I mean, how do you feel about that? So
0: I exercised my stock options, but when the company was recapitalized, I accepted the buyout offer
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I shouldn't have. Like if I have one regret, (laughs) it's that I didn't like put my foot down and say, no, no, you roll my stock over to the new company.
2: Mm.
0: That's my regret. Mm -hmm. My, my other regret is at the time I didn't want to be a manager. So my role was more like CTO.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so my, my regret is. Thinking that I should stay there and just be an engineer as opposed to learning the other things. And since then I have learned how to manage people and how to deal with the business side of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And It's a progression.
0: Yeah. Isn't it? And so I, I at the time was like, no, no, I just want to be an engineer. I don't want to deal with the people issues, everything mm-hmm. else. And I think mm-hmm. I would have, it would have been a great chance to learn and grow in that way.
2: Mm. Exactly.
0: So I, I regret those two things. And. Um, some of the folks on the team you know there was a a chance to leave and a a bunch of us sort of left at the same time some of the folks who left really stayed better connected kept coming into the office Mm -hmm. so tony stubblebine who is now ceo of medium he and i left at the same time Mm -hmm. but he kept showing up and just kept engaging and kept participating and so what I didn't realize at the time, and what I've learned since then, is that the secret, so- one of the secret sauces of Silicon Valley and of startups
2: mm-hmm. is that it's not yeah. about
0: the companies.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: about your coworkers and your teams and the people. And so you find people you mm-hmm. like to work with. You find people who are smart. You find people who have networks. You find people who are creative and weird. And they have to be weird because. Otherwise, <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: they would just get a normal job. They'll go work at, at Google or whatever.
2: Yeah exactly.
0: And that network matters more than anything else. And so the you know, if you look at it, you ha- you, know, you have that network that were blogger folks who became Twitter folks who moved other things. The, a great example of this is the Flickr team, half of that Flickr yeah. team, Went to go run Etsy. The other Mm -hmm. half quit and started this company called Glitch, which itself Mm -hmm. pivoted to be Slack. Oh, really? (laughs) So the companies, you know, Glitch failed. Mm
2: -hmm. Flickr
0: failed its way into getting acquired, but then didn't end up in the right spot. But the people that worked at those companies, continue to collaborate with each other and build new important things. And so, mm. you don't pick the company, you pick your coworkers and you pick the network because those networks build out your career. The the other major mm. lesson of Twitter is that Twitter was not an innovative company. Mm. Twitter it was it was fundamentally not innovative. What Twitter was
2: mm.
0: was really good at making space that included other people. So Mm
2: -hmm.
0: early on in the company, we had people who came in, they worked in the office, they did design work, they did collaboration, everything else. We're like, are you an employee? And they're like, no, but I think this is fun and I'm hanging out. So it was (laughs) very, it was a very open space. Like the front door was open and people wondered. And sometimes it'd be, you know, this guy Dunstan who, Whose day job was designing Apple.com's homepage, and he's like, "I I want to do some more interesting design work," and he did design work for us. And sometimes it'd be a homeless person, and we have to shuttle them back out. Um, <laughs> but that that culture is what meant that when people started really using Twitter, and they started doing at mm-hmm. before your username, and started doing hashtags, and started doing retweets, and started doing tweet streams, and putting links to images and links to video and, and mm-hmm. short links and mm-hmm. and search, all yeah. of those things. Everything we think of as Twitter today was the users of Twitter figuring out how to use this platform that was super flexible and interesting, and then the company just looking at how people use their tool and yeah. supporting it. And so that's the it's trick is like, amazing. listen to your users. Don't fight your users. Mm make them mm. make them part of the thing and, and users of twitter like when someone says i joined twitter or i left twitter they're not talking yeah. about being an employee they're talking about being mm. a user but the language and the ideas it's almost like they were an employee
2: mm-hmm. and, that's and so
0: if you can do that then you have all of your users or all of your customers are super fans because they feel ownership of it.
1: Wow, it's an amazing story. And everything that's come out of that from all the people that were involved as well, it's quite amazing. Like so many startups and big projects. Um, it must've been a really amazing time and, and space to work in, very exciting I'm, I'm guessing. And, and- Being part of that, like the creation of Twitter, you know, how has it shaped or changed your life or your career trajectory? Has it, because of that, has it changed what you do on your life itself? Being known as the, the person that started Twitter,
0: so the oddly enough, the 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 knowledge, you know, Twitter Twitter wasn't a big deal when I left, but Twitter became a big deal over time and the network around it of the people I met through Twitter while I was working on Odeo and we were working on Twitter, that is has absolutely shaped my career and I feel incredibly mm-hmm. lucky. So sometimes people ask me, you know, are you upset that you, you know, didn't roll over your stock and that you, you know, they also, like, yeah, you're sure. Mm-hmm. Of course it'd be nice to, <laughs> to have, have that huge amount of money, but yeah. the experience and the connection and understanding the history and being part of it and all the things I learned from that and being able to build something that had that level of impact on the world, that's way more valuable mm-hmm. than any money. Money, money is useful. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's nice to not feel sure. broke. It's nice not to have a job where you're having to do something that you don't like,
2: Yeah.
0: but you know, it's a force multiplier. But if one thing I learned about looking at people who did make lots of money mm. is, it is just that it's a force multiplier. If you're not happy, mm. if you're not grounded, if you're not figuring out what you're doing with your life and everything else and all of a sudden, you have hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. You're just unhappy at a massive scale.
1: <laughs> and
2: and, if and you're why, happy, why do you think that
0: is? Or if you've yeah. got solid relationships, or you've yeah. got meaning yeah. in your life,
2: yeah. Yeah. then it yeah. lets
0: you operate at a massive scale on that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. I remember once at a seminar, and someone was saying, "Look." you know, money, if you think money can change people, like if someone, well, they they say someone's a dickhead, they'll just be a bigger dickhead. (laughs) And if someone's a really good person, then they can do a a lot more good. So I I guess that's the case, but yeah, money doesn't make you happy. That that's, you know, that's a bit of a a myth, I think. Um, but you, yeah, if you have a lot of money, you can use it to, you know, help other startups (laughs) that are in the space or whatever you want. Um, yeah. So you know, um, no regrets of not being a, a multi-billionaire. I,
0: it would have been nice, but no regrets. I, I, yeah. um, I feel incredibly lucky to have played an active role and a part of it. It's a. They did a mm-hmm. study at people who are Olympic medalists, and the happiest person is the bronze medalist.
1: Right. That's interesting. So the
0: gold medalist is happy because they're yeah. number one.
2: Yeah.
0: This. They're, they're, the, the silver medalist is the least happy medalist because <laughs> they look at gold and they say, I almost got gold.
2: Yeah, I almost yeah. got
0: the, the, the top thing.
2: Yeah.
0: The bronze medalist looks at it and go, holy shit, I could have been fourth. <laughs>
1: That's so true. Yes. And so
0: in my case, I didn't yeah. know that those startups I worked on would be so important. I could have picked different mm. startups. I could have picked different teams mm-hmm. I, and and yeah. you never know. To give you an example, I had a chance to join GitHub when they had a few employees. I think my GitHub right. user is number 62. Right. I had no idea that GitHub would be worth so much. It would be so successful. Mm. And so like, and I didn't work on GitHub, just my friends did. The trick is give yourself those opportunities. Put yourself mm-hmm. in a position where you're working with interesting people and it's not just you. And, like, and realize that it's never the idea, it's always the execution and the people. The farther you get from Silicon Valley, the more people think the idea matters and that the idea is important and I'm not gonna tell you and it. you know, I'm gonna put these NDAs and everything else and someone's gonna steal my idea. Mm. ideas are worthless (laughs) execution is everything and startups Mm. are a team sport so like Mm. we do hero worshiping this podcast is great there's all these stories and everything else and yes i'm an entrepreneur and i go through and i put more risk on myself than anyone else and and i have failures and successes and and investors invest in me but Mm. the real answer is that it's a team sport and so it's about like who which team do you want to be on and like, how do you find the right teammates? Cause you're going to do it together.
1: Yeah that's, yeah. that's beautiful advice. Um, particularly for, for new or early stage startup founders, you know, is building up that network, getting on the right teams, um, uh, building up that credibility. It's so important. I remember once um, talking about like the, the right networks and you were saying get the right parties, um, the, fellow here uh, that i knew he created the music score for yep. avatar and um i was talking to him uh with another friend of mine who was doing in the music industry and trying to get ahead and he said you yeah, know how can i get ahead like well, what tips do you have and he just said go to barbecues and we're like what do you mean just go to the barbecues um, I'll invite you where all yep. the you know people in the industry hang out and then you just keep going and then after a while say hey we need a musician for uh, this score for that movie and oh, are you available you know so it's pretty much works like yep. that so yeah, yeah. he didn't follow that up unfortunately he said oh no I gotta you know that sort of mentality I won't do that I gotta do it myself do it the hard way so um, alright so I was just wondering, like, your name, rebel is like your oh, nickname. Yes. Um, it's intriguing. Like, could you share the story behind sure. the
0: name? Sure. So, you remember how I was saying in 2004, I was helping do mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of stuff for people protesting against George W. Bush and the invasion in Iraq. Yeah. And uh, uh-huh. one of the websites that I ran at the time, still have it, but I don't, there's not much there. It's called protest.net. And it was a calendar of activist stuff, and I didn't want to put my name on it because it's organizing a protest. So yeah. I put like rabble rousers as like the, the fake email address <laughs> okay. They went to me. Okay. But Unix file names, usernames can't have a hyphen in them. They have to be shorter and everything else. And so the username became rabble. Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. when I went to go make a blog, somehow that name ended up on the blog because I was, it was my username on the server. When we went to go found Odeo, there was Mm -hmm. Noah Glass, Evan Williams, and myself, Evan Henshaw Blapp. And so we had two Evans out of the three people.
2: Uh, So Evan Williams
0: had used Ev as his name on his blog. So he just went by Ev. And I would used Rabble on my blog when I not wanted to put my real name on it. So I went by Rabble, And so neither one of us went by Evan and it eliminated the confusion in the company.
1: Yeah, yeah, that
2: can be an and issue. And so,
0: especially when I there's th- only three people. And so mm. as we were working and going to conferences and talking to people, everyone in the office started calling me Rabble, and I thought it was kind of cool. And so... Mm-hmm it just stuck.
1: Yeah, it is a cool but name. But it wasn't thing.
0: like, oh, I should call myself this. It, yeah, it just yeah. happened. And, and the reason it happened was literally because yeah. we had a naming conflict around Evan and, and yeah. you know, in the startup.
1: And do you, do you um, still keep up with any of those guys from the early days with Jack Dorsey or any of the others from the Twitter? Absolutely.
0: Uh, Jack's the, the primary mm-hmm. funder of my company right now um awesome he lives in costa rica now um (laughs) but uh yeah yeah we keep up uh blaine cook who was the original architect is a close friend we hang out um tony Mm stubblebine who is the the engineering manager is now ceo of media um a few of the other folks ray was the 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 designer and adam does business development we you know we get together not you know the only person who liked everybody is biz stone. Like there were lots of like back and forth and fighting and positions like that. And like, back and forth. Yeah. And so there were all these like weird little teeny factions and, and things like that. And, uh, and, yeah. um, you know, there were, there were the engineers and then there were the, the business people and, and whatnot. Um, the biz likes, everyone mm-hmm. gets along with everyone. And I do keep in touch with stuff and we get together, but there's no like big reunion.
1: Okay. Not like a once-a-year reunion? No, or because, because there like was that. so much bad blood
0: over time as, as <laughs> you know, Ev fired Noah, then fired Jack, and then Jack fired Ev, and then...
1: <laughs> well, tell us a bit more about that. That's so interesting. He was the original was
0: founder it? of the company. He's the guy yeah. who said, I want to do audio in the yeah. podcasting thing. He was the vision yeah. behind it he's the one who said we should do, you know, we should do these hackathons. He's the one who yeah. came up with the name Twitter. And yeah. Yeah. Um, what happened was, he threw himself so completely into the startup that uh-huh. his marriage fell apart. Oh,
2: nice.
0: And Ev decided that he would be a liability and because Ev Williams was the original investor and the money guy behind it because he'd sold Blogger to Google. He actually uh-huh. went in and fired his friend. He decided that Noah was <laughs> going to be a liability. Um, wow. And it was wasn't good. Now Noah probably was going to be a liability, but it wasn't handled well. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then, yeah.
0: Ev wanted to do a product lab where they built a whole bunch of products and not just Twitter. And so that's why Jack was named CEO of one of the products, which was Twitter. And then. Yeah. Twitter grew into sort of overtaking everything. And Jack same the CEO. And Jack had never managed anyone in his life before then. And so eventually Ev stuck stepped in with with the majority of the shareholders and the board and fired Jack and took his (laughs) position as CEO. And then the board, as Twitter continued to grow, decided that Ev wasn't qualified to be CEO. And so they had brought in this guy, Dick Costello. And Dick was an early blogger guy, and he'd sold a company um, to Google. Um, and mm-hmm. he's super personable, and he like, you know, had, had to decide whether or not he was going to go with Second City and be like a comic and go on Saturday Night Live or do startups.
2: Right.
0: So he brought Dick in, who's super competent, uh, as COO. And then, the funny thing is, Dick's first, Dick Costello's first tweet after joining as COO literally says, "Joining as COO of Twitter. Task one: undermine CEO and replace them." Oh, really? Which is exactly what he did.
1: That's so unbelievable. So he organized
0: a boardroom coup. Got Ed Williams fired. But when Jack had been fired by Ev earlier, Ev didn't remove Jack's Twitter email address and kept him on the board. Uh So after Jack got fired, he's like, well, you know, he didn't know what he was going to do at first. So he went around and did a whole bunch of press stuff. He's like, well, I'm not an employee. You know, I'm I'm just on the board, but I can do a bunch of press stuff, positive things. Uh And then he, meet some people who are figuring out how to do uh, credit card processing, the audio jack on the phone, and start Square, which becomes Block, which becomes a successful Uh company. And he used his network and everything to make that happen and his design skills. Mm -hmm. And he got coaching, so he learned how to be a manager. Okay. So then Dick Costello's CEO is kicked Ev out and doesn't know why Twitter is successful. Like it's a mess. And because he isn't a founding team member and he doesn't know why it's successful, he's not able to break things in the right way to make it a successful mm-hmm. company. A couple of years later, Jack has now proved through square that he can build a real business. He got mm-hmm. the coaching. He got the training. He did the reading. He did the work. He learned how to manage people. Yep. He grew. Yeah. And mm. Jack deserves so much credit for that because he went from a nerdy, shidey engineer on the team to someone who can build, found to build a company and take it public. So when he did yeah. that, the Twitter folks are like, we don't have direction in the company. And so the board brings them back in as a product lead person. And he's still running block and square, but he's also at Twitter. Mm. And he sets them up so they're across the street from each other. Then the board is like Dick Costello is not finding the business model here. He's not able to fix things. So then Mm -hmm. they bring Jack in as CEO again and kick Dick up. And you know what Dick Costello does? What? He becomes a a screenwriter for the Silicon Valley TV show. I was just going to say, it is just like a soap opera. opera. it, It is more than that because... At the time when Twitter was first standing, after Gaba, my ex left, there was only one other. There were only two other women in the office. There was Sarah, who's Ev's wife, mm-hmm. and she sort of did work sometimes and sort of did. And then there was Crystal, who ran customer support and trust and safety. Anyway, Jack really wanted to go out on a date with Crystal, but Crystal ends up going on a date and marrying Goldman, who's Ev's best friend.
2: Oh, no one talks about
0: Crystal, but Crystal hired the most people in the company, the founding team member who was around the longest, super important. She never talks to the public, but she's super badass.
2: Mm.
1: What an amazing story.
0: But once Jack got Brock back in and once he learned how to be a manager and he had to learn that stuff, Mm. like we don't Mm. get born that way. He learned that. He learned how to be a really good entrepreneur. He had the desire, but Mm -hmm. he learned it and he studied and he found mentors and he found coaches and he, and he talked to people and he learned how to recruit the right people and set them up and make it successful. Mm. Then the board trusted him to bring back in. And for the most part, he saved Twitter, but, Mm. and he fought off hedge funds that were trying to take over and everything else. But here's the real reason why Elon Musk was able to take over.
2: Yeah. Eb didn't you have that.
0: super voting shares. And every okay. time they had to flip over who was the CEO, the power shifted to the board and the investors and the company executives and the founders had less and less shares. Uh, so by the time Elon Musk took over, mm-hmm. Evan, Jack and the other folks, who was still like the, the entire founding team had less than 10% of the company and oh, less than 10% man. of the votes. And so there were Elliott capital and silver Lake who kept threatening and they had board seats. They kept threatening to take over. And so Jack was an impossible situation because his real money all came from square. That's the paying mm-hmm. job. He never got paid to be the yeah. CEO back at Twitter but Twitter was important and these hedge funds got themselves a seat on the board and they kept wanting to take it over. And they wanted to like, they thought they could monetize it better. They didn't realize how vulnerable Twitter was. Mm. And so when Jack said, I think Elon Musk is the singular person who can save Twitter. It's because Not because he thought Elon Musk could do it, but because he knew that Twitter's position with its ownership structure and hedge funds wanting to come come and take it over, they're going to come in and they're going to be a bull in a china shop and they're not going to understand how Mm. fragile it is. And they're going to see Twitter's giant brand and not realize that Twitter hasn't found the business model that really works. It doesn't have the cash Mm. cow of Instagram or TikTok or, or Facebook. What we didn't realize is that Elon Musk would try and run Twitter himself as opposed to (laughs) being the finance guy in the public face and, like, let professional do Mm -hmm. it. In his other companies, he doesn't run them day to day. He doesn't run SpaceX. He doesn't run Tesla. He doesn't run Neuralink. He doesn't run the boring Company. He makes sure there's the money and he's the spokesperson and he does the Mm -hmm. really important recruiting. Yeah. And but because he was a user of Twitter, he thought he could run Twitter and he can't (laughs) because it's really hard. And so Mm. he screwed it up and we lost it.
1: I mean, yeah, he he, didn't he fire like 80% of the development team on the first day or something?
0: Yeah, he fired he fired a huge number of people really, really quickly, and um, but he didn't he didn't fire them in ways that were right. He's like, "Who's written the most lines of code? Okay, you can stay."
2: Uh, it wasn't yeah, wrong yeah. to clean yeah. house,
0: but he did it in the wrong
2: mm-hmm. way. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, and then renaming it and change. I mean, I, I remember I was on Twitter when he took over. And I was like, I saw so many of his tweets answering people all over the place. I think this guy must be on like 24-7 full time. How can he actually be that engaged? Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or you think would be good?
0: Um, no, I mean, the the main ones is, you know, the standard lessons of of talk to your customers mm. and realize, you know, nothing and the people you work with matter.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the last question is, look, I'm sure, you know, you often get asked about the Twitter story because it's such an amazing story and Twitter's become so huge. However, what story from your life do you wish people would ask you that no one has ever asked you?
0: Um, um, I think, you know, so in the time between when when I sold my first startup in in 2000, Mm And when I joined yeah. <clears> Odeo <throat> in 2004, I spent a bunch of time traveling around the world on and and doing various stuff. And I, that time was simply working on the next project. I was a digital nomad for for four years, and mm-hmm. I ended up helping all of these activist groups. And I ended up mm-hmm. like meeting and getting to know like. Evo Morales, who was later elected president of Bolivia. I brought computers to set up labs, computer labs for the Zapatistas in Mexico. I did a bunch of those stuff and
2: nice.
0: all of those weird things, all those things that are not directly related to the career of learning how, you know, I smuggled stuff, but it was computers. Um, Or setting up computer (laughs) labs or solving problems or getting to know folks or learning a second language. Um, Mm -hmm. Very, very non-traditional type things. And Mm. that stuff's all really valuable. Like the, and, you know, I think that be adventurous and try things and and be willing to fail, and don't have the same path as everybody else. Because having the same path as mm-hmm. everyone else leads to to boring companies that aren't very interesting. And so,
2: yeah,
0: do something unique and different, and and that'll give you unique insight. And so that's that's something that, you know, I uh, one time I was asked. I was at a conference organized by Telefonica in Madrid. And it was a very big conference, very big conference center, very corporate. And someone someone got up and asked, How do we get Silicon Valley in Madrid? And my my answer was, you know, one Silicon Valley exists in Silicon Valley for random reasons. Shockley, the guy who created the first semiconductor, and like there they go. He moved to Palo Alto because he wanted to live near his mom. Right. We could talk about Stanford and UC Berkeley and innovation and everything else, but truth of the matter is, he could pick anywhere in the United States he wanted to live, and he was super smart, Nobel Prizes and all that other stuff. Uh, but he just picked Palo Alto because that's where his mom lived. And it's nice. And the weather's nice. And he wanted to live near his mom. The reason it stayed and grew was because that they didn't have the restrictions of the East coast of the proper establishment. And Mm -hmm. it kept growing because that was one of the centers of the counterculture, the hippies and people Mm -hmm. doing acid and everything else. And so, you know, The growth there, from the outside, you see uber capitalism. But Mm. inside, what happened was a merger of alternative social movements and alternative lifestyles of folks and queer folks in San Francisco and the Castro and people dropping acid and people going down to these research labs and doing new stuff and people trying polyamory and all sorts of things like that, the whole Burning Man thing. Like Burning mm-hmm. Man isn't a weird thing that Silicon Valley does. Burning Man in many ways is essential to understanding it and essential to creating it. And so you can't get a vibrant startup culture if you've got a group of people who are looking for day jobs. You can't get a vibrant startup culture when you've got a group of people who want cultural continuity with their parents. You have to be willing to try drugs, try new kinds of relationships, new ways of living, new ways of collaborating. You've got to be willing to throw out all the existing ideas and build something new. And that is why we think of startup culture as utopian. And it is Mm -hmm. also why it is uniquely more successful than elsewhere. And, you know, there's lots of talk about Silicon Valley's ideology being libertarian. But it is only some of them who are right-wing libertarians. There's also the majority of Silicon Valley who are libertarian social Democrats. Who are Mm -hmm. willing to throw away the norms and build something new willing to throw away so the collaboration builds something new, and so what we need to do is we need to we need to find a way to embrace that and support it and not punish people from being weird and freaky the team at Twitter yeah. that made Twitter we didn't go to the fanciest schools we were really weird and we all brought different things to it and that's what made it work? And that that diversity. diversity, and it wasn't mm. diversity, you know, in terms of like gender diversity experience. of perspectives on stuff. And the reason yeah. that Facebook yeah. was successful and Google was successful and all these other companies is because mm. they set themselves up in a place where that kind of craziness could happen. And people would be open to those ideas and aren't punished mm. for loving those ideas. And no one's punished for failure. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that's the big thing, isn't it? That's so important. Yeah. Well, that's really, um, like your story is really amazing, uh, rebel and, uh, really appreciate you being on taking the time. Yeah. From beautiful yep. New Zealand or, or should I say New Zealand? <laughs> With correct accent <laughs> um, yeah it's wonderful and I'm sure this uh, podcast this episode will help a lot of other founders particularly looking back at everything that happened in those early days and so much wisdom coming out of that and hearing your story was amazing really appreciate your time uh, and, and your, um, your wisdom your knowledge um, very well, very much thank you so much for thank reaching so out it was a for pleasure. are you enjoying the podcast then please do me a favor and become part of the 12% of viewers that have hit that follow button. This helps me to grow the channel and in turn help early stage startup founders on their difficult journey.